This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, just a few days ago on one of those government briefings, the Minister of Health, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christine Elliott, when asked about where is that iron ring you promised around long-term care, she said vaccinations were the iron ring. Well, as of three days ago, only 8,000 of more than 122,000 shots that have been administered have gone to long-term care residents. General Rick Hillier, who's in charge of the rollout, keeps promising to do better. But according to healthcare professionals, his order to prioritize speed above all else is part of the problem. The government is promising to speed up the process. It says residents, long-term care residents in the so-called hot zones will be vaccinated by next week. And the rest of the care homes in the province will be done by February 15th. But the Ontario Medical Association says doctors are facing a lot of red tape and paperwork in their efforts to vaccinate those residents of nursing homes. And it's all another reason why leading gerontologists have called the rollout in long-term care a gong show. So what do you think? Uh, what are your experiences? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And joining me now, Dr. Samantha Hill, President of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate for those in long-term care facilities. Doctors, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here again, Libby. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let us start with Dr. Hill. Uh, what are the obstacles being, first of all, what is, what is the role of doctors in vaccinating people in care homes and what are the obstacles? So that's a huge question. I mean, we know that long-term care homes are having active outbreaks and over 40% of them have. And the best solution we have right now is about vaccines. Unfortunately, those vaccines take two weeks till they have 80% effectiveness and over a month until they get over the 90% effectiveness range. We've lost our runway. Any runway that we had over the spring is now gone. Now we need to do things now quickly in order to protect our elderly. We've already seen over a thousand deaths in long-term care and the projections put us well above 2000 by mid-February when we can think to have everyone vaccinated, not necessarily fully protected, but vaccinated. So we're looking to the government to help us help patients. And it's simply that simple. We don't want to see any more avoidable deaths. We know that some of the people who are dying in long-term care centers are not dying from COVID per se. They're dying from a lack of resources. Frankly, they are dying from dehydration. They are dying from a lack of oxygen. They are preventable deaths. And Dr. Liao said it the other day on our presser very, very well. She's a palliative care physician. She said, it's time to stop making people comfortable and start preventing the preventable deaths. Okay, Dr. Stamatopoulos, what's your view on this? Oh, I completely agree. 
with um, with the doctor, of course. Uh, we did miss our, our runway, so to speak. I like I like the way you put that. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we are promising that we'll get to all of them within, what, the next uh, month plus is just not good enough. I am, um, given the rollout so far, I have very little confidence that they'll actually meet that objective that they just mentioned the other day. Um, and uh, it's just really sad because at this point, I'm, I'm just hearing constantly, of you know, accounts of neglect, accounts of dehydration, malnutrition, and just preventable deaths that shouldn't happen because of, you know, the ongoing understaffing that was a problem before the pandemic and only exacerbated during the pandemic, especially in these homes with exploding outbreaks. I mean, I posted the statistics earlier today that were courtesy of uh, the Ontario Healthcare Coalition, but we have some homes with 200 plus cases. I mean, we have dozens upon dozens of staff sick at home isolating. Who is filling in for them to provide this care? And then you wonder why we have residents dying from completely preventable causes. I mean, it's horrifying. Dr. Hill, so what, uh, I mean, my understanding of the rollout is that it's hospital teams from the big hospitals who are going out to vaccinate the residents. So uh, do family docs from the community have a role in it now? What role do you want? And what about going in to help alleviate these shortages? What do you want to be doing that you're being blocked from doing? Right. So thanks for separating out those two questions because they are two very different questions. I agree um, extensively with Dr. I'm going to butcher your last name. I'm sorry. No, I agree extensively with Vivian. Um, you know, even if we meet the current expectation of vaccinating everyone by mid-February, that potentially puts us at an extra 1,500 deaths. And that's if we meet those expectations, if we meet that projection. So we need to improve our vaccination. The biggest challenge to that, frankly, I don't think is about who is doing the vaccination right now. Obviously, family doctors need to have a bigger role in this. They know their patients. They know how to do this. They have been vaccinating for eons. But the real big problem about vaccination is the supply. And frankly, credit where credit's due, that's not under the provincial government's control at the moment. The other challenge, though, is about getting people in to help. And that is a fundamental challenge. Mm-hmm. Red tape is preventing physicians from moving rapidly into long-term care. It's also preventing nurses and PSWs. We do not have enough people. We do not have enough hands at the bedside. Prior yep. to COVID, one physician could take care of an entire long-term care house because most people were well. They just needed help. When people start getting sick, each of those patients takes up more physician time and you require more physicians in that space. You also require more nurses and more personal support workers to help them with their activities of daily living and all of their medical needs. Well, what now, is the red tape though? What exactly is it? Is it is it an issue of billing? Is it an issue of letting you into the, the care homes? What What is it exactly? It's twofold and there is some... Um, Lack of clarity, as always, you know, red tape is always about bureaucracy and lack of clarity, Um, but it is twofold. There is an issue about remuneration, but honestly, that's not stopping any of the physicians from going in. I know numerous physicians who have gone in, haven't gotten paid, have no idea how they're going to get paid, and it's not going to stop them from going in again because that's what we do. We help our patients first, and we figure out the, the fiscal side of it later, and frankly, that's what people generally count on from physicians. But there's also issues about being allowed in. Um, there is not a clear 
hierarchy at times, particularly there are differences between the profit and the not-for-profit system. There's differences under once a long-term care center is assigned to a hospital and a hospital starts to take over, who is responsible for that? There are different approaches between people, physicians who practice long-term care generally versus hospitals. They're both very qualified physicians, but they practice medicine differently with different goals. And we're having trouble coordinating between the moment a site, a long-term care center needs help, to when they say they need help, to when that help is found, to when that help is actually on the ground. And that delay costs lives. You know, it's interesting. Last week, I was talking to the head of the Long-Term Care Association, and she was saying that even the the hammering out of those agreements when a hospital takes over management, which is a response to a crisis, that uh, there's bureaucracy and there's not a sense of urgency and mm-hmm. everything is on hold. The homes don't get help until those agreements have all the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. It's sickening, really, isn't it? Uh, it, it just seems to make zero sense. What is the solution, Dr. Stamatopoulos? Well, if we're thinking bigger solutions, I obviously think we need to move to a single system of long-term care being public nonprofit delivery. I mean, that would cut down some of the bureaucracy for sure, because what we're finding is that the homes that are not reaching out for help or actively are turning away help tend to be the for-profit homes who, quite frankly, don't want further attention drawn onto their negligent practices. And I've heard from families who have been begging, from staff who have been begging on the ground floor. They need the help. They want the help. And never is the help sent in proactively. It only comes in after we effectively have turned it over to the media. And the media has put the spotlight on how terrible the conditions are at each given of these homes. And then there's a mad dash to send a hospital, a local hospital in. It's always reactive. This is the, the, the textbook approach of our government. There's no proactive method in order to address this. And we've given many ideas, many strategies that could proactively address these issues and really flag which homes are in trouble. So we could send in help before it gets out of control. But we never get help in soon enough. And a lot of that is often because of these homes not wanting to draw attention to themselves. Is that your experience, Dr. Hill? So I don't have any personal experience in long-term care, for which I'm currently quite grateful. I know many of the physicians who have gone in are really struggling more so than even the rest of us are. But I will say the for-profit long-term care sites or the private sites, whatever we're calling them, they have competing interests, and that's a challenge. And it is a very similar challenge, I think, to what we see when we start talking about private health care in general. I think there's a fundamental decision that Canadians need to make. It's not up to me to make that decision, but it's about whether or not we believe in for-profit health care. If we don't, then I don't know why the health care of our elderly would be any different. Well, I know there's been a survey that was recently conducted um, that shows the vast majority of Canadians want long-term care to be brought under the public health system. So we have that information. I think it was the National Institute on Aging that actually put that survey out in the summer. Um, so we know how the Canadian public feels. Now, well, the question is, are they going to actually do anything? Is the prime minister's office going to do anything at the federal level? And this is what I've been hitting home with uh, their office that I've had calls with over the past week about what they actually need to do if we want to 
actually effect positive change in the long term in this sector. Well, the last thing I heard, I mean, national standards is a problem because of provincial jurisdiction issues that they are prepared to negotiate individually with provinces. (laughs) Sounds like uh, that's something that that it's way off in the distance. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the impression I'm getting to. I just have back a little bit on the fact that we know what the public wants, because it's easy for the public to say that they want it under um, provincial or under uh, under public spending. But how much extra are we prepared to pay in taxes for that to happen? And that, of course, is the other side of this. This discussion, there is no such thing as free health care. It's a false dichotomy that we believe as Canadians is that our health care is free. It is not free. We pay for it with every cent of our taxes, and it's currently already underfunded. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough capacity. We were behind um, even before the pandemic started, and now we are 14 million visits behind. Okay, so, I, I, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just no, have one okay. question before I have to wrap up here, and that is uh, lots of confusion about sending in the military yesterday. Uh-huh. The first, the premier was saying he yeah. would never refuse help. He Trudeau offered again. Uh, he was going to look at which homes need the military, and then the prime minister's office issued uh, a statement saying, no, we're not asking for the military to come in. So uh, 20 seconds each, uh, w- what do you think of that? Should we be getting the military in, uh, Dr. Stamatopoulos? There's no question about it. I've spoken to Red uh, Cross reservists who have been in these homes. Their scope of practice is severely limited. They are effectively porters. They cannot even feed residents. We need the military teams because those teams are comprised of two registered nurses, 12 medical technicians, and general duties personnel. Those were the teams that were sent in in the first wave. It is vital we get them back in. And uh, Dr. Hill, last word to you. Last word to me is that we absolutely need help in these centers. We need oversight and we need help. I am not particularly um, partisan about where that help comes from. If the military is the easiest and fastest way to get that help in, then let's use it. If there are other ways, that is fine too. But we need more boots on the ground taking care of our most vulnerable. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Samantha Hill and Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. Stay safe. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.